So the first question, uh, how highly do you take off-plan cards like Ruin Crab? So most of the like really off-plan stuff that I'm going to take um, is stuff that I will have taken before I knew what I was drafting. So like it's not that unlikely that I'll have first picked a Ruin Crab, and then I'll discover that blue-white rather than blue-black is actually the archetype that I'm in. And now the question is like, am I planning to play this Ruin Crab? Does the fact that I have this Ruin Crab mean that I want to like build a strategy around Ruin Crab? So uh, the answer to Ruin Crab specifically is that it's one of those cards that answers the question about how you're winning. And I like Ruin Crab uh, most in decks where your answer is, well, I have a lot of card advantage, but you're worried that maybe that doesn't actually convert into killing your opponents in some weird spots, and then Ruin Crab gives you inevitability because despite the cards that you're drawing, you still deck them before they deck you. Uh, but if that's your plan, you can't rely on a single Ruin Crab because it might die or it might be like the bottom card of your deck. Um, and so at that point, you want to prioritize a couple other cards that are going to let you like mill your opponent out. Um, so maybe you like make sure that you have a few Zulaport duelists, and then maybe like the combination between the Rune Crab in your deck and the few Zulaport duelists that you have let you play a Relic Golem. Um, and now you have like this uh, kind of like hybrid blue-white party slash blue-white control mill deck, um, and that's that's definitely a real archetype. That's like a sub archetype of blue-white that does exist. Um, but uh, the answer to like if you're here and it's off plan do you take it and make that become your plan um, for Rune Crab specifically again if I'm like a Sky Zagger deck Rune Crab has no place in my deck and I'm just not going to take it but um, if I'm the more like spells control type deck now Rune Crab has a little bit more utility and I'm uh, a little bit more interested in that and basically I have to decide okay well like in the way that I expect my game plan to play out like does this constitute like a bomb even though it's not like contributing to my thing um, another sub archetype that exists um, is uh, actually I mean there are kind of like sub archetypes that exist with each of the relic uncommons uh, relic golem relic amulet and relic vial so you can have like I'm trying to mill you um, as a sub-theme in your blue-white party deck because that can be kind of entirely contained in blue cards, and then you can use Relic Golem. Or um, sometimes you just have a lot of, like, card draw and wizards and, like, random cantrips and uh, practice tactics and stuff, and there are some, like, white support stuff for, like, party creatures, but... Um, you can, it's rare, but you can end up with a uh, Relic Amulet deck in this space. Um, and then, similarly, Relic Vile is so incredibly busted with Attendant Healer that, like, if you have, you know, two Attendant Healers, you basically just want to play a Relic Vile, like, no matter what. Um, and obviously, like, there are plenty of clerics available in white, um, so, and, like, it's just a pretty strong card if you have a cleric in play, so... Um, it's not as good as it is in white-black because you don't have the um, reanimation elements that black has that let you get back the creatures that you've sacrificed. But uh, it still does sometimes have a place in cleric-dense uh, blue-white party decks, especially when you have exactly a tendon healer, which is the thing that makes a 1-1 when you gain a life for the first time each turn. Um, so uh, that's... Roughly, you know, the answer for Rune Crab specifically, and obviously 
for how much do you prioritize card X that doesn't explicitly synergize with your deck. Ultimately, it comes down to, well, how strong is card X? Um, are there any tribal payoffs that aren't great normally, but you take, uh, or that, that are great normally, but you take low in blue-white? Um, let me think about that. Uh, so, Allied Assault is a strong card, um, but I have found that it has performed less well for me in blue-white than in red-white, because in red-white I'm more likely to be like attacking and trying to get them dead, and using that to like get a big damage punch at the end, and I can play it on like the red trampoline warrior, whereas in blue-white I have so many other spells that pay me for uh, my types that like I guess basically what I'm saying is practice tactics is better in blue-white than allied assault, uh, whereas allied assault is better than practice tactics in red-white. So the uh, prioritization of those cards flips in uh, those two party archetypes, for example. So there are some things uh, that definitely change value. Um, that's the first one that comes to mind, um, where it's like, distinctly better in a different party archetype than it is in this party archetype. Um, outside of that, uh, like I think Skyclave Plunder is better in blue-white than it is in blue-red. Skyclave Plunder is kind of like at its best in blue-white because of cards like Practice Tactics that uh, kind of like mean that blue-white is the best at having a low curve, which plays well with having expensive card draw spells. Um, it's also the best at having a large party to get the most advantage of the scry-like effect from Skyclave Plunder. What percent of your blue-white decks end up being long-term value versus beatdown decks? So that's going to be more a statement about how Sam drafts than about um, what uh, blue-white wants to be doing. Um, I am someone who naturally has a bias toward uh, playing long value games, um, and so I am going to end up with a higher ratio of long-term value decks in any archetype than another player drafting a similar archetype would. Um, so for me, uh, most of my blue-white decks are long-term value decks, but that's not a recommendation about how other players should draft blue-white, um, because I do think that, like, the Seafloor Stalker uh, heavy... The, like, the, the blue-white decks with a real emphasis on Seafloor Stalker, I do think that those decks are good, and I, I've been impressed by, like, the strength of Seafloor Stalker in those kinds of games. Is there a key difference for these blue-white decks than blue-white decks historically in general? Uh is the next question. And, I mean, yes, uh, blue-eyed decks in general, like, blue-eyed decks historically haven't had this thing where you get paid for each creature that you have on the battlefield. And so, um, that's just not, uh, like, a priority. Um, you're, like, here, Zulaport Duelist, just being a 1-1 on the battlefield you get paid for the fact that you have this 1-1. One, one. Even if it can never engage in combat, it gives you the type rogue that makes all your other cards better. Uh, Blue-white 
in general, historically, has no interest in just like having a 1-1 creature sitting in play. Um, that means that you're a lot more incentivized to just like find ways to get like random small creatures that just like hang out on the battlefield and do nothing. Where blue-white traditionally is maybe interested in some like good big blocker types that give you virtual card advantage. Um, virtual card advantage is when a creature has like big enough stats that it can hold off multiple attackers. And so you kind of invalidate two of your opponent's creatures that can't attack because you have one creature. Uh, so historically, blue-white's like kind of interested in cards that can gum up the board like that, but with the end goal of gumming up the board to allow a flyer to attack rather than kind of like gumming up the board as its own reward. Which ultimately, I mean, functions like pretty similarly, but um, isn't quite the same. Um, I think the whole party thing is like a different. Like it feels very like in the spirit of blue white. It's a different take on stuff blue white has done, but it certainly leads to thinking about things different. All right, next question: If you had a strong start in two other colors, is there something that would make you move to uh, blue white? So. My answer to that is um, this is that's really a like general drafting philosophy question uh, rather than something specific here, and the answer is that any pick that I'm making, I'm always evaluating um, like potential like potential upside against opportunity cost. So if I'm like a few picks into it. I draft and I'm drafting red green landfall um, and it seems to be going pretty well uh, and, and maybe four picks in or whatever and then my fifth pack has a spoils adventure um, and I'm like oh wow this is like a really good uncommon uh, in an archetype I really like and four other people have passed on this which means four other people are probably not interested in drafting this archetype so that's a pretty strong signal that this is open but if I take it I have to just like throw four cards in the garbage if I'm going to actually play with it. Um, so in that spot, if there's another like card that's going to make my red-green deck meaningfully better, I'm probably not likely to think, yeah, I'm likely to want to throw four cards in the garbage for this one card. But if there isn't a like card that would meaningfully improve my red-green deck, like there's... Um, I, I don't know, some kind of like replacement level-ish creature um, in red-green um, versus like this thing here, I might see the fact that there isn't a card that my deck really wants is a sign that there might not be cards that I really want later and see a really high potential ceiling for taking this card and having the potential, potential to switch if it's open and I see more stuff like that. So um, I'm happy to like take a random floater on a card that's much stronger than uh, all the cards in the pack, but in a different archetype, and then just see where we go from there. But if um, there's a card that's just a little bit worse, you know, if it's like, well, there's a 9 in this archetype and like a 8 in the archetype I'm drafting, well, sorry, 9, I'm just not in a place where I can take advantage of you yet. Um, that actually... Uh, this is now unrelated to your question, but it brings up another question, like another kind of like important issue in general, which I think is like the topic of what is a replacement level creature in this archetype? Because I do think that um, all like kind of the biggest value that I think a lot of people miss in drafting is failure to identify the power level that you get for free. Um, so basically, like, there are, there's such a high density of, say, fives 
that you never need to take a five because you'll just have fives. Like fives will just fall into your draft pile by the end of the draft. And so you can afford to take a random off-color eight that you probably won't use over a five because the five isn't going to increase the strength of your deck because you'll just get a different five later on and you don't need to prioritize that particular five. Um, so if we define a five as exactly that, a five is like the cards that you will ultimately end up with more than enough fives. So taking a five should never be a priority because it can't improve your deck because it is replacement level. Um, which, which cards are the fives? Which cards will you have? So for example, I consider uh, Angel Heart Protector to be a four um, on that scale where replacement level is five. It's so bad that I will never have to put it in my deck. I'm gonna have enough cards that are better than it. Now, the one time when I will play it is if for some reason I expected to get clerics and I just didn't, and I'm willing to take a power level hit. I'm, I know that I'm playing this four over another five that is available to me, because I do, you just end up with infinite fives. But I want to play this four because it's so important to me to have a cleric, because I'm really short on clerics and have a lot of party payoffs. Um, so I, I think like Cleric of Chill Depths and Angel Heart Protector um, are fours. Whereas I think like Cascade Seer, Cliff Haven Sellsword, Kabira Outrider, uh, Expedition Healer, um, cards like that to me are fives. Um, I'm never going to take any of them over a card that will be a number higher than five in any specific moment or context. So I'll take any sideboard card over them. I'll take um, any off-color reasonably strong card, any like pivot to another archetype, anything I could see myself having a reason to use, I'll take over any of the like interchangeable fives through most of the draft. Once I'm late enough in a draft that I know a particular five is going to fill a hole in my deck, then I'll start taking it. But um, for the vast majority of the draft, I just expect that I'm going to have some of those, and a five will never improve my deck, so I'm never going to spend a pick on it over something that might improve my deck in some kind of narrow circumstance. Oh yeah, this is a great question. So the question here is, um, are there other decks you can uh, more easily backdoor into uh, drafting blue-white uh, from if like that other archetype isn't there and you just kind of pivot? Because it is, it is really important to be aware of the pivots that are available in drafts, um, and uh, you definitely want pivoting to be in your range. And the thing that I was talking about, about like taking floaters in um, archetypes that you're not but could shift into, um, obviously it's much better if you're drafting red-green landfall to be able to pivot into like a red or green card that's going to take advantage of half of the picks you've already made rather than like taking a blue-white gold card that's not going to be able to use any of it, for example. So, um, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, any archetype where you are blue or white is going to be able to pivot more smoothly than any archetype where you're not blue or white, right? But, um, you know, going a step beyond that, obviously any archetype where you're actively looking for party is probably more likely to be able to pivot than one where you're not. So, um, for example, uh, green-white, at least the way that I draft it, tends to not be a uh, party archetype. Um, that prioritizes landfall creatures and plus one plus one counter stuff, which mostly exists uh, on creatures that don't have party types. Um, so if I've been 
drafting white and like really highly prioritizing like two three vigilance four drops that get counters on them and uh one one uh landfall uncommons that get counters on them i'm unlikely to have any white cards that i'll be excited about in a blue white party deck whereas if i was drafting uh like black white clerics then i'll have already been prioritizing clerics and i'll have already been like aware of party benefits and stuff like that so it's much more likely that you'll shift into blue white party from uh, white-black clerics or blue-red wizards um, or like uh, red-white party than it is that you'll shift into it from like blue-green kicker or uh, green-white landfall. Um, blue-white, uh, blue-green kicker to green-white, or er, blue-green kicker to blue-white party is a particularly relevant pivot for me to be aware of because those are my two favorite archetypes um, and they are drafted very differently uh, the blue cards that I prioritize in those decks are extremely different from each other um, but also th like the blue green kicker cards are so strong that it's not like bad to have to play any of them in a blue party deck um, and the way that I draft uh, blue green kicker prioritizes all the blue cards over basically all the green cards in that archetype um, and so it's like not that weird that I'll have just like taken a bunch of blue kicker cards and then I'll be like oh wow I'm really not seeing any green cards but here's a strong white card and then I end up in this like blue kicker base deck with some white cards and then I have to try to figure out how much I want to uh, pivot into um, uh, taking advantage of party versus kind of drafting the like blue white control deck uh, that like uses the like leans really highly on the uh, blue kicker stuff, and I think that that exact pivot is how you often end up in the uh, like Tizim Royal Mage control version of party, uh, where like maybe I have like a you know domination and some uh, field researches and some royal mages, and now I just kind of like round that out with like a shepherd of heroes and some uh, practice tactics, and I have this like you know. Uh, powerful spells control deck that uh, uses party. And I need to see, uh, as soon as I'm shifting into um, white there, that now I need to reevaluate how I've been prioritizing my blue cards and put myself in a position to take advantage of the party stuff. And like I do want to like pay attention to that pivot, but when the pivot happens, you don't want to just throw away all the like, blue kicker cards that you already drafted. So you try to like build this... Uh, hybrid version that's a little bit more controlling and that deck is often going to end up uh, you know with a lower prioritization of Seafloor Stalker and kind of follow the pattern that I talked about earlier. Um, Alright, now we have another question. Uh, is there a big difference between best of one and best of three with this deck and how you try to draft to Mythic? So, um, I'm still working on figuring that out, to be honest. Uh, most of my drafting in this format, when I was like learning the format, has been best of three. Um, and I do prefer drafting this format best of three. Um, and I have been a lot more successful in best of three. Uh, so after like having really, really, really successful runs, like winning remarkably close to all of my matches uh, with blue-white party and best of three. Uh, switching to best of one, I've definitely struggled more. Um, and I think part of that is just like the draw smoother, uh, rewarding 
people for being more aggressive than I'm used to needing to be. And part of it is just like not being able to sideboard to like, you know, adjust for that. Um, and to like, you know, cut some of my card draw stuff for some like defensive creatures and stuff like that um, to adjust. Um, so, uh, yeah, th there, there is definitely some uh, adjustment that needs to be made to shift to best of one, but I honestly, personally, haven't figured out like exactly what that looks like. I'm, I'm still working that out myself. Um, next question is, where do you rate Pack Beast versus the top common payoffs like uh, Shepherd and Stalker? So, for me, there's a pretty big gap between Shepherd and Stalker, and I understand putting them uh, together in that I, I did talk about how you want to prioritize both of those rogues because they're the rogues that you have access to. Um, but for me, Shepard is like a, you know, actual top, top common. Um, like, you can take it over a lot of uncommons, and I'm taking it over basically every other common. Um, whereas Seaflower Stalker is like, I'm gonna, I, I'm not sad if I have to try to table this because not very many other people want it very much. And also, like, with Shepard of Heroes, even though it costs a lot, I'm pretty happy to play, uh, like, a lot of them. Um, whereas, uh, with, um, Seafloor Stalkers, like, it's kind of a, like, more dedicated finisher where, like, it's not the end of the world if I have to play three or four copies of this, but I get a lot more value out of the first, uh, like, two copies, um, than I get out of, uh, subsequent copies. So, um, Shepherd of Heroes is a much higher priority than Seafloor Stalker, which factors into my answer about how I rate Pack Beast, uh, compared to them in that I have Shepherd of Heroes above Pack Beast, and Pack Beast above uh, Seafloor Stalker. Um, so, like, uh, I, I, I have actually thought through, like, precisely where I have uh, Pack Beast in my rankings. So, for example, uh, in Clerics, like, I think that Stonework Pack Beast is right behind uh, Shepherd of Heroes, Attendant Healer, and Core Celebrant. Um, but it's better than Skycliff Cleric and Cliff, uh, Kite Sail Cleric and Expedition Healer, um, as far as like which clerics I take above and below it. Um, whereas like for rogues, I take the rare rogues, Nimble Trap Finder, Glasspool Mimic, and Thieving Skydiver over Stonework Pack Beast, but I take Stonework Pack Beast over every common and uncommon rogue. Um, and then with wizards, I take the rare wizards, uh, Linvala and Master of Winds, um, and Umara Mystic, which is the DFC uh, wizard, uh, over Stonework Pack Beast, but I actually take Stonework Pack Beast over all of the uh, commons and most of the uncommon wizards. Um, Warriors, similar situation. I take uh, all the rares and Emeria Captain, so Squad Commander, uh, Tausri Beacon of Unity, Emeria Captain, and Legion Angel over Stonework Pack Beast, but I take Stonework Pack Beast over all of the commons and all the uncommons except for Amiria Captain. Um, so if you want really precisely where Stonework Pack Beast uh, is in my pick order, that's the answer. Yeah, uh, so I was asked um, about why I have uh, Pack Beast over Royal Mage um, with a follow-up question that says, uh, in Wizards specifically, and I think that might be the stumbling block here. Um, note that Everything that I'm talking about in this session, I don't know if you came in late or anything, but everything that I'm talking about here is for uh, my rankings only and exactly in drafting Blue-White Party. Uh, none of what I'm saying applies when you're drafting any other deck. Some of it might happen to be true, but I'm not making any statements about any other possible archetypes you could be drafting. 
So it's just Tezium Royal Mage is less of a priority than Stonework Pack Beast when I'm drafting Blue White Party. Um, and so uh, the reason that I want this, you know, relatively vanilla 2-1 over a 2-1 with uh, what I do consider a good ability is that I just think that, you know, getting your party payoffs matters a lot and uh, wizards are highly replaceable. You have the most depth among playable cards in the wizard tribe uh, compared to the other three classes in uh, blue-white. So um, royal mage is... So... Also, I, I've talked about this like sub archetype of like royal mage control, where royal mage moves up your pick order if you have some really really strong uh, spells to get back. So we're talking like uh, good uncommon and rare spells. Um, if you have that kind of card, now you shift to zima royal mage up. Now to zima royal mage, you take it above stonework pack beast. You probably take it above the mara mystic. But when you don't have that, and when you're just looking at commons to return with uh, Tazim Royal Mage, now I think that uh, your deck is relative, isn't great at taking advantage of it. The card you're getting out, it's not that big of a deal. And the advantage of Stonework Pack Beast working with all your class synergies and powering up all your party stuff is a lot bigger than the advantage of Tazim Royal Mage potentially kicking and getting like a Practice Tactics back. Um, is Into the Royal worse than Practice Tactics in this archetype? Um... Both cards are really good. Uh, I, I have talked. I, I haven't addressed uh, the rankings between those cards uh, specifically, um, but I um, have talked about how I want to um, really maximize my creature density, and then the fact that Into the Royal replaces itself um, means that uh, it kind of like doesn't cut into your creature density as much as other spells would. Um, and I think both cards are great. Uh, in general, I believe that practiced tactics is a higher priority than into the royal um, for most versions of the stack. I do think it changes somewhat. Uh, again, like if you have uh, royal mage, then into the royal goes up because, like, especially if you have like really good cards to return with royal mage, because you end up in spots where you're like using into the royal to get your royal mage to get back your really strong spell or whatever. Um, but uh, by by default, um, flexible, and I want some of each. I prioritize practice. I prioritize tactics above into the royal. But like I, I have made a kind of like a rough list of exactly how highly I prioritize like everything in this archetype, and I do have uh, practice tactics exactly above into the royal on that list. So they're like adjacent, very similar power level, but um, I, I prefer tactics. Um, I'll note that I prefer tactics by a little bit in this archetype, but that means that, like, uh, Into the Royal I prefer as a card in the format in general. So, like, pack one, pick one, or, like, pretty early on if I'm not sure which archetype I am, but for some reason I'm considering both a blue card and a white card, I'll definitely lean Into the Royal. Um, and that could mean even in a spot where, uh, like, I first pick a card that means I'm probably going to want to be this archetype, um, I, I would still probably take into the Royal in case I end up pivoting or something like that because it's a more flexible, stronger card. Um, and also, you're not going to table into the Royal where you might table practice tactics. So I do think, uh, particularly early in the draft, it's reasonable to like pick into the Royal over tactics, even though ultimately when I'm building my deck in this archetype, I think that uh, you know if you only have one or the other, the deck will be stronger with tactics. 
I guess I'm going to uh, move toward wrapping this up. Um, really appreciate uh, everyone who tuned in, especially those of you who asked questions. Uh, great questions. Happy to have help with uh, figuring out exactly what I should be expanding on here. Um, and uh, I, th I think this, you know, was uh, roughly how I was hoping this first thing would go. Um, so I'm excited to uh, get all this up in podcast form and for all of those, everyone watching this on uh, YouTube and listening to uh, the podcast, I appreciate all of you uh, tuning in. And if you want to um, catch the uh, live stream and be able to uh, answer questions and uh, participate in all of that, um, I will be recording this weekly at uh, 8 p.m. Central, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, do the math for other time zones, um, every week Thursday. Uh, so tune in Thursday evening to catch this podcast live and uh, get to ask uh, questions. Um, and if you can't make it, uh, I, hope everyone, I hope the people here ask whatever questions those of you listening had. And I'm excited to uh, keep, you know, diving into further archetypes in uh, future episodes. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess I should do a quick um, plug for all this stuff uh, since I am kicking off this project right now. Uh, so the um, there's a typo in the Patreon link that is uh, th that'll get fixed up. Um, but uh, the, the Patreon link is, uh, you know, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Um, until there are uh, some set number of followers on, I'm, I'm totally new to this whole YouTube thing. So uh, until I get some set number of followers, I can't have like a coherent YouTube channel with like an actual name. So just go to YouTube and search drafting archetypes to find this. Uh, hopefully pretty soon I'll get enough followers to like, that you can actually like go to some kind of reasonable website. Um, and if you want to help me do that, then be sure to uh, search on YouTube and follow this channel. Um, and uh, as always, uh, all uh, this podcast won't have its own Twitter account since it's just me. Um, I am going to handle all the tweetings about it. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Samuel H. Black. And um, obviously the uh, stream, for those of you who aren't watching it right now, is uh, twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black. And um, I also have a uh, Discord. Um, the uh, Discord for discussing this podcast will all be in uh, my existing uh, Discord, Challenging Assumptions. Um, and there's an invite, uh, permanent, like, open invite to that discord available on my uh, Twitter bio and I will be uh, throwing up a channel to discuss this podcast on uh, my discord so um, those are uh, the tools that I can tell you right now I'm sure that uh, whatever podcast platform you like to download podcasts from you should be able to find it by searching drafting archetypes um, and yeah, that's all the, you know, uh, random uh, businessy tech side stuff of the, you know, real point here of 
Hope you are uh, digging the content and learned something, and I'm excited to get back and teach about like the other archetypes to kind of compare what's going on, because that's really the whole point, is to evaluate like how things are different in different contexts, and with only one context, <laughs> I can't really highlight that, but uh, you know, it's all, it's all part of a big picture that I'm working towards, so uh, yeah, I hope everyone is interested in following along to work all that out. Um, so last shout out to all the viewers and listeners. Appreciate everyone and goodbye.